welcome to Matt Village on 98.9 Northwest FM. You're here with myself and with Carol. Good morning, Carol. Good morning, Jaime. And Carol, do that again. Good morning, Jaime. Oh, much better. Much better? I, yeah, I always have tr- trouble with your levels. I don't know why. Um, how, how are we doing? All right. Doing well. You know, Carol, I just, I can't be, I can't help but resist the tenta- temptation of saying this is going to be a pre-recorded interview. And I just want to be able to say this because uh, of what is happening Right now, uh, we're maybe about to lose our current prime minister for someone new. And I think that might be useful context for our interview today. I'm so excited about our guest for this, uh, for this show. Um, her name is Nyadol Nguyen. And many of our listeners may know her because she is uh, quite a well-known um, lawyer, community activist, commentator. Writer. Writer. Uh, beautiful writer. Um, so we're going to be talking to her about lots of things about her life and you know uh, on our show we have been focusing a lot on what we called a a government-led racist outbreak uh, with with the African gangs issue so Nyadol has actually been incredibly active on this issue and we definitely want to hear her views but the first thing that we're gonna do today is gonna play her first uh, music selection for today and um, it's actually a musician who I absolutely adore so I'm very happy about this so let's hear it and we'll be back in just a few minutes yeah. of iniquity said it's the misery you are excited on the bash radio show thursday nights with james liotta so why don't you get excited too and join him every thursday night from 9 p.m for one hour of great fun interviews prizes and a whole lot more don't miss the show the bash thursday nights from 9 p.m like us on facebook the bash radio show oh yeah biohacker what is it a revolution. When is it? Every Tuesday night, 9 till 10. Join us, Juan, Vlado and John, for your injection of science and democracy on the People's Radio Station 98.9 Northwest FM. I really like that uh, title, The People's Radio Station of Hatfield, Northwest FM 98.9. The show is Mad Village. Our guest uh, is in the studio with us today. Her name is Niadol Nguyen. Good morning, Niadol. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. And um, do you mind telling us a little bit about that song and what's your connection with it? Uh, I really like the song. I think it's interesting because in some ways it uses a lot of references to the law. Um, But I I think it's a really good way of... self-critical self-examining society um and yeah i just i and i also just really i'm a big fan of lauren hills well so are we so that's great now um Nyadol, i i have introduced you as a lawyer community activist commentator i mean nowadays you seem to be incredibly active and a lot of the things that you do are wonderful but can we start going back to um your childhood a little bit and you can tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how and how you eventually became a became a lawyer uh, well i um i grew up in kenya and um spent a majority of my time in northern kenya in a place called kakuma it's still there and uh, but also um, spent some time in nairobi the capital as well as um 
having spent uh, sometimes just an hour away from Kakuma in a place called Lodua. So I've moved, I moved around a bit. Um, I uh, in and out of Kakuma for majority of my, my adulthood and my childhood until I came to Australia when I was 18. Um, and it was for me what was just the life that everybody else was living. It was a refugee camp, you know, um, and that meant that, uh, like most refugee camps, it was it wasn't the most hospitable place to live. Um, so, can I just ask you a question about that? So, you lived in Kenya, but are you of Kenyan origin? No, not at all. Um, so. I lived in Kenya, but my parents are uh, what you would call ethnically, um, I would say South Sudanese, but that's also not correct because South Sudan has a lot of a lot of tribes, and mm. and so you 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 belong to a tribe, and the term South Sudan more accurately define a geographical location mm. as opposed to a people or a language or a society. Yeah. Um, and so my parents, both of my parents are from the Nuer tribe of mm-hmm. South Sudan. Yeah. Um, so I'm ethnically Nuer. Um, but uh, my from my mother's side, uh, spent a lot of time in Ethiopia because they're Nuer both in South Sudan and Ethiopia. Yeah. Um, and so um, I was born in Ethiopia in a refugee camp called Itang. And then grew up, of course, in Kenya and then came to Australia when I was 18. So I'm a bit of... All of that, I think. And one of the reasons for my question, in Kenya, you would have um, learned Swahili. Yes. But I imagine that you would speak a couple more languages as well. Yeah, so I learned Swahili and English in Kenya. uh, And then I speak Nuer as well. Okay, Hmm. beautiful. All right, so um, let's, let's go back to the time when you came to Australia. And I mean, coming here as an 18 year old, uh, did you jump straight to year 12 or how did that work? Uh, yeah, I did. I Not year 12, but year 11. Okay. So I uh, came, landed in Melbourne on in March of 2005. And then... Um, same, same here. <laughs> yeah, so, well, that's good, that's good to know. <laughs> and then a few, a few uh, months later, I went, I was in a bus um, going to Denenong and I saw a school called, um, at the time, New Memory College, secondary college. And so I walked in and, and asked to be enrolled into the school because when I left the camp, I was in um, year 12 uh, or the equivalent of year 12. Um, and I decided that because I wanted to understand and get used to the system first, that I was going to go back to year 11 here um, and give myself some time to settle in. Um, and I enrolled in year, year 11 at you remember in college. It's now called Hallam Campus. And then, um, yeah, I did my year 11, year 12, and then went on to do a Bachelor of Arts at Melbourne, oh no, sorry, a Bachelor of Arts at Victoria University. And um, about a year later, applied to do law at Melbourne. Did you have the opportunity of much formal education when you were living in refugee camps? Yes, yes. Um, because of, uh, uh, I mean, it was actually initially set up uh, on a temporary basis. The idea was that the refugees, there would be a resolution to the conflict and most of the refugees could return back to to, to their countries of origins. But um, but it just kept going on. So, I mean, it's still there. Kakuma is still there nearly 20 or so years after his establishment. Um, when we started off in about, I think, the 90s, early 90s, 
the schooling was really bad. So when I um, started, say, primary school, we used to, we didn't have desks, for example. We sat on stones. Um, we didn't have a teacher. The guy that taught us um, had no formal education. And so we ended up just singing songs um, for about an hour or two and then went home. Um, we didn't have books, you know, so we just kind of um, just crawled with our finger on the sand. So, so yeah. how difficult was it to adjust to remembering secondary college? I mean, by the time I got got into um, uh, phase, uh, things that had actually settled in Kaukuma. So there was a, you know, there was much more structured form of education. Um, and uh, beside, like, the cultural context of coming to a new country, um, you know, classroom culture was very different here. Uh, so in, in Kaukuma, you know, Everybody was desperate to have an education, so people paid attention in class. You know, there was hardly noise making. People um, were uh, eager to to succeed, um, and, and and I'm not saying that that was not the case when I got to um, to you remember in college, but it was certainly different. Like I, you know, um, you know. It sometimes was hard to concentrate on class because you know, the class were really loud, and and I think also just the uh, the, the structures back in Kakuma, um, you had a lot of respect for authority, um, but it was much more a conversation, and that was that was in um, interesting to get used to, um, and then um, yeah, just getting getting used to using computers, which. Which I had used to a certain um, level, but not really well. So I remember one time uh, not even knowing where to turn on um, the computer, um, learning to type, you know, uh, learning to use calculators, which I'd not used before. Uh, different. Um, so you you said that you went to study a Bachelor of Arts, mm -hmm. um, and. Did you complete that and then went on to study law? Or? Yes, yes, okay. yeah. So I studied law at Melbourne as a postgraduate degree. Um, by that time, I had completed a three years degree at Victoria University, majoring in psychology. And what, how would you describe your, I guess, your experience being welcomed into Australia and, and, and living here? Did you, did you like it? Did you... I mean, I was desperate to come to Australia. Uh, by the time my family got the approval from uh, the Australian government for resettlement. Um, I was, you know, as I mentioned before, in my last year of, of secondary education and I was quite desperate to get out of the camp because I knew that I didn't have a lot of options after that. My my mom would not be able to afford um, to pay for further education outside the camp um, and there was no um, any form of further education within the camps. Um, so I was quite excited to come here because it, it presented to me... Um, the opportunity to pursue things that I had dreamt and, and wanted to do for a long time. Uh, so I was really excited. And I think there was an excellent honeymoon period there where everything was so good. The food was tasted good, the water <laughs> tasted good, you know, um, the sun seemed bright. Like it was just, there was nothing that you could find wrong with mm -hmm. with um, being here. Uh, and in, in my life, uh, and I've spent 13, 13 years now, I think, um, I've had also I've met tremendous, really generous people who have been 
um, you know, mentors and and uh, just supporters and encouraging um, in so many ways. So they've been a good side of it. But you know, I've also experienced you know racism. I've experienced um, racism both personally and I think in the climate of what we have now, the experience of racism at a much more um, uh, almost state-sanctioned kind of kind of uh, racism really. Um, uh, and also the the certain media outlets coverage, you know, um, at the bluntness of the racism itself, the bluntness of the otherness, you know, it's not even it's not even um, hidden so, anymore. So we, we we're gonna give you plenty of time to talk about that because that's really interesting. But I wanted to stay a little bit with your story. Um, so you went to study law. Um, at which point? Did you sort of decide to get so involved in the, I guess, the, the activism and the, you know, to be a, become a public face, uh, you know, because I... I never decided, actually. Um, <laughs> it just happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I never I never decided that. And I think, you know, um, um, I think it's, it's what for some of us feel as if it's a necessity at the moment. Mm -hmm. I'd rather any day um, sit in my office and learn the skills of how to be a good lawyer mm. um, because that's what I want to, to do. Um, but in, in terms of doing this, this is not, I've, in, in some ways I've always done things like this. In, in the camp, for example, um, in, the, in Kalkuma refugee camp, I was a member of the uh, youth and drama uh, group and what we did uh, was raising awareness through um, drama and acting and singing and poetry. Um, and so we covered topics on HIV AIDS, we covered topics on domestic violence, um, on issues of, of, of gender rights, for example. Um, I uh, used to teach young children in the church. Um, uh, so, and um, I, st I, was, I wrote, you know, a few times in the camps. Uh, so, so I, and then when I came to Australia, I continued to volunteer, you know, um, and, um, kind of mainstream organizations that were working with young people or young people of refugee background. Um, so I'd always been doing a level of this, um, maybe not at the extent that it's now occurring uh, to, to, what, to, to what it is now. Beautiful. Nadol, we're just going to park it there for a second. Uh, we're going to play the second selection that you have given us and we'll be back with our interview just very shortly. So let's see if this is the right track. <laughs> Our lovers got humor. She's the giggle at a few. Oops, we almost got caught off guard there. But uh, so that was um, Josier, Take Me to Church. Uh, great song. I never get tired of listening to that. And that was our selection by Nyadol Nuyon, who's our guest on uh, Mad Village this morning. So, Nyadol... Um, well, first of all, why did you choose that particular song? What does that mean to you? Or is it just one of your favourites? It's just one of my favourites. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. It's really well written as well. I think if you listen to the to the lyrics of the song, it's almost so poetic. And it... Um, the imagery it invokes in 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 your mind, like I, 
I like that. I think, yeah, it's a good song. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Are you musical yourself? No. Um, I would like to think so, but I think everybody in my family will disagree. Beautiful. <laughs> 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 so um, we're just going to jump uh, a little bit, you know, maybe a couple of years in time or a few years um, to um, to Peter Dutton and his comments about African gangs and how it was dangerous to go out for dinner in Melbourne. Mm. And I guess your your reaction and perhaps the reaction of people in your community as well, how how that impacted people? Well, I think that's... Frankly, this has been going on for a while. You yeah. know, for maybe I'll put it around 10 years, about okay. two or seven, uh, where we had similar media coverage, uh, similar hype about African gang or uh, gang or ethnic gangs. Um, the terminologies change, but essentially they're speaking about the same group of people. Yeah. Um, but I think this this is the first time that... Um, actually, that, that's probably wrong. It's not the first time that federal politicians have got involved because in 2007, we had the then Minister of Immigration, uh, Kevin Andrew. That's right. Um, I do remember that. Commenting on this on on the issue, which came after um, you know what to me and a lot of members of Sudanese community was the racial bashing of a seventeen year nineteen year old boy called uh, Lieb Goy, mm-hmm. um, who was brutally murdered by two <laughs> two two men uh, two white men, um, one of whom said he was you know going you know he was looking for a black man to kill and um, was going to take out his anger on um on you know i suppose black people um and they found Liep, uh and beat him with metal bars to the point that those metal bars bends and left him to die and his life support was removed you know the next day by his family um and this 19 year old boy passed away in very horrible s- circumstances and immediately um After his death, some media organization began reporting that his killing was related to ethnic gangs mm. and and you know uh, sort of uh, some some have been insinuating that it had to do with some tribal things um, mm. back home. Yeah. But the aim of it was try to connect his his killing to the idea of you know problems around Noble Park with African youth. Mm. Um, and of course, it became clear that that was not the um the the how he was killed but despite the fact that this young boy was killed in a racially motivated attack the then minister of immigration kevin andrew came out and commenting on his death um announced a news policy where they were going to reduce the intakes of people from africa mm. by from 70% to about 30% now that has never gone back to those numbers despite the fact that africa still produce a high number of refugees. So, in fact, it has just continuously gone down. Mm. Um, so, similarly, this time around, you had, um, you know, the, the, the same kind of mistakes that were being made initially about the reporting. Um, but it was it was, it was was different in a sense that I think this time around, um, there was a number, as opposed to one politician, there was actually a number of politicians, and it went quite high up, including the prime minister, or at least the current prime minister. <laughs> And um, and I think that kind of made it 
important that we we push back because in 2007 our community was so relatively new that maybe we didn't even know how to push back at mm. some of the narrative but i think that's been also what is different this this time around Nadal, I just want to point out that you wrote about Liep and the the influence that his death had on on you um, in that amazing article called uh, How Racism Diminishes Humanity that was published in the Saturday paper a couple of months ago. really want to encourage our listeners to have a read. Um, so one thing that you talked about is the preparedness of the of some of the African communities. Um, to respond to this um, and obviously on social media there was a, a pretty amazing campaign mm. uh, which you know there was a hashtag African gangs that was used um, maybe tell us a little bit about that well I wasn't involved in the African gang hashtag it was um, started off by two other um, young um, South Sudanese people yeah so um, Mark Mayek, Mayek was one of them no, I, th- I think so because he he came to the show just a few months ago yes yeah. yes I think he was one 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 of the people that started the hashtag um, I thought it was an excellent effort in terms of like turning the narrative on its head mm. and exposing this array of um, African Australians that were just achieving and that this was the normal you know the normal was African Australian graduating from universities, becoming members of the armed forces in this country, um, being parents, uh, being teachers, being social workers, being lawyers. Um, that is the normal. Um, and yeah, the emphasis on a few group of young people that are doing what is reasonably um, and not acceptable behavior um, is still no justification to color a whole community um, in, in bad light. So, going back to the impact of those comments on on African people in Australia, I mean, you've you've you probably heard from uh, many commentators, you know, things like people being afraid to leave their homes, particularly quite soon after a, a, a comment has been made. Um, there is, um, you know, what nobody else sees: the kind of uh, uh, damages does to your sense of self-esteem, your sense of belonging in this country. Um, And because a lot of it also is so racially charged, um, the impact of that is that it not only dismisses you as a person, it dismisses everything that that identifies with you. Because that's what racism is. It's suggesting that people like you, your ancestors, your history, your culture, your language, um, is inferior or in fact problematic. This has happened throughout Australian history, in fact, world history, to different groups of people at different times. Have you had the conversations with people from different backgrounds who've been through this? I mean, in the 90s, it was a different group. In the 80s, it was a lot of people that came from Southeast Asia. Has there been some sense of solidarity or exchanging of strategies between different communities? There have definitely been some solidarity. Um uh, I recall one of the first acts was actually, I think, the Vietnamese community releasing a statement in support of the South Sudanese community. Um, and I think there was also an indigenous youth group that also released a statement um, condemning the, the kind of um, racialized um, reporting. Um, so, yes, definitely some solida- so solidarity. Um, I've always been cautious, though, of the... Um, the, the, the the argument about this happening to other people before, because um, I mean I think it's it's said so that it makes you feel uh, feels slightly better 
that this is not uh, this is not the first time it happens and it goes away <coughs> sorry um but um I, I think it's problematic particularly to me because it's first of all suggests that there is an insistence on doing this this harmful thing over and over again despite the fact that we know it's harmful you know so the fact that things haven't changed should be concerning you know that we've done it to so many other groups before mm. and we're still not 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 changing it the second thing is i'm actually quite suspicious of how temporary it is you know i think that the impact of this kind of media uh coverage does has do have a real effect on the trajectory trajectory of 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 integration of african australians in this country um it does have long term impact on the self esteem and uh the, you know the self belief of our young people um you know I, i've spoken to young people who feel, who feel like they just want to disappear in public spaces they don't even want you know, they sit in the train and they try to avoid people's eye contacts they try to minimize their presence um which is which is a sad thing that you you are part of this world part of this community and in public spaces all you want to do is disappear and not be seen because you've been made to feel so visibly um a threat that um that you begin to to question your right to occupy public spaces you know so i think the impact of them are long term um and so you know like i've written some elsewhere on twitter you know the 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 elections are going to end and you know political careers would be you know sustain or lost and the some media outlet would go on to the next story but um the effect of this would always be carved out in our lives yep. you know i would talk to my children about this episode um because i don't i would never forget it i w- i wanted to touch on the role of the media as well because um i i also have been following the recent death of a of a young woman mm-hmm. um and how I guess ruthless the media was in trying to mm. to exploit this story for their own purposes and maybe if you can tell us a bit be- because I know that you were sort of relatively connected to this family. Yeah, it was really it was really hurtful. Um it was really hurtful but in some ways um it was expected. Mm. Like I mean, this is what happens when um when people's lives have just become um sort of a performance for mm. for 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 whichever party wants to draw an interpretation of what the performance is about. So in this instance you have a mother who has lost a daughter um in a tragic incident. Um and and that tragedy that is quite common, you know, particularly when it when it relates to male violence against women. Mm. Um that tragedy Uh, is then used to weapon as a weapon again is so despite the fact that police came out and say this had nothing to do with gangs you know it didn't stopped uh, Peter Danton insinuating that it had something to do with a gang it didn't stop a number of media outlet drawing a direct link between that and african gang crime despite the fact that the police had said had no link you know so this this the life of this young woman was not a life worth remembering in the way we remember the life of the white young lady that was murdered in the park in you know in uh, parkville it was just a chance for people to make a point and am i right nadol in saying that the the newspapers were there in her house Oh, absolutely. Like I I was called on the Monday 
by the family and asked to come and ask media outlets to leave the house because they'd been literally begging them to leave and they were not leaving. They were parked in the front of the house. Um, you know, there was an Herald Sun journalist that managed to get into the house. Um, there is a dispute. Uh, personally, the journalist and I, you know, actually, I have not had a personal interaction with the journalist, but but um, I called out the story based on the information that I had from the family and from what I'd heard from a number of people in the house at, the, at that time. Um, and of course, that's ended up on, you know, with Andrew Bolt um, having a session on, on me and calling me an, a liar on national television, among other things, you know. Um, but... <clears throat> But it was, you know, it was really shocking to see, you know, journalists reaching out to an 18-year-old young girl that just, you know, just a few, you know, a few hours ago lost her sister and asking her to pay tribute, you know, to, to her sister. And then even when that young woman was not replying, you know, continually trying to get to get information from her. This is a young person that has just lost their sister. Mm. You know, I can understand, you know, a journalist wanting a story. Um, but e when you begin to put yourself in a position where people are in one of the worst experience, some, one of the worst thing any human being can experience, losing a child or losing a sister, when you, when you put your story first before their emotional health, um, you then really risk doing something wrong because um, it becomes then a question of whether you should be there in the first place, you know, for other people. And as a journalist, you know, I can understand wanting a story. But for me, as a person who was in that house and saw those, those people in, in that kind of state of mourning, um, nothing about it was good, you know. Um, I, I couldn't agree more. And yeah, I... I Again, I think there were a number of people who tried to keep the media accountable, but it was just um, extremely um, disappointing. And I mean, uh, it's not the first time. I mean, there was, I just can't remember, what is it, a current affair or 60 minutes or, you know, mm. like quite a few of those media outlets routinely will raise issues about. Uh, again, and I think that there are differences as well if African people are involved I think there was an incident in was it in Geelong? Yeah, yeah, there was. There was you know there was an incident in Geelong where I think it was a hundred you know n white kids essentially riots. It was so bad that the police um, were locking themselves in the car and calling for backup from Melbourne. And I think one police person, one policeman or a policewoman got injured, and it barely barely received the the same kind of coverage that you know, an incident in Taylor's Hill uh, over, you know, what was actually the police, at least according to the police um, conference, was about 30 to 50 kids, you know, fighting over some girlfriend or teenage drama. Um, and that was, you know, splashed all over the news. Um, there was exaggeration of figures that it was about 100 kids. Mm. There was, you know, suggestion that the police... <clears throat> were telling residents to uh, stay indoors when the police were saying that they actually never went door to door and told anyone to stay indoors, but they did tell people who were standing outside, you know, and trying to watch the incident to go back into yeah. their... into Just their not to make things worse. Not to make things... Yeah. Not, not to make things worse. There was no police injured, you know, there was... Uh, nobody was injured, thankfully, but it didn't get the same coverage. And even more recently in, in Sydney, where I think it was about 100 or, or even more um, youth riots, you know, 
this time not African youth, you know, hardly any media coverage. Police were also, a policeman was also injured in that, in that in, um, incident, and I think there was an arrest made. But ex exactly, no same incident. And also no, refer no reference to them as gangs. You know, they were just, um, <laughs> That's right. you know, youth. They're a just group, young group people of being youth. silly or something, yeah. Yeah? yeah? It was just, you know, a group of youth. But, but almost every incident of offending that involved two or more black kids is now a gang, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, um, this all really reminds me as well. When you and I arrived in Australia, Nyadol, in March, March 2005, mm. back, back then, I think Pauline Hanson, or even before, she, was just, she just kept going about the Asian invasion. That was, mm. That's all she talked about, you know, how Australia was being inundated with Asian people. And, and then all of a sudden, that doesn't seem to be a problem anymore for her. Oh, now but the problem, I think, is Muslim exactly, invasion. Exactly, that's what yeah. I mean, but... I don't think she has said anything about Asian people for the last maybe five or six years. So anyway, just interesting. Now, we're going to play your next song. Um, let's hope that this is the right one mm -hmm. because we've been looking for it. Um, so it's a classic, but performed by someone else. Probus is an association for senior members of the community and for those no longer working full-time to join together in clubs for a new lease of life. Relieve isolation and loneliness, advance intellectual and cultural interests and enjoy regular opportunities to progress healthy minds, active bodies and new adventures with new friends. If you'd like to know more about the Probus organisation and experience the true spirit of fun, fellowship and friendship, please phone toll-free 1-800-630-488 or visit probussouthpacific.org. So what are you waiting for? Join Probus today and get a new lease of life. Do you want something to do instead of hanging out at home? The Don Bosco Youth Centre, 715 Sydney Road, Brunswick, is open every day except Monday and public holidays. Birthday parties are available six evenings a week and lunchtime on Saturday. For times, costs and availability, go to donbosco.org.au or call 9386 7563. It is definitely a good place to throw a kid's birthday party. I've been to many... Uh parties in Don Bosco in Brunswick it's a, it's a good place um, now you're listening to Mad Village on 98.9 Northwest FM we're getting to the last segment of our interview with Niadol Nguyen um, and the track we just heard was uh, Bernal Taylor performing Let It Be anything to report about that Niadol or I just, just I just really like the voice and the song and also I think that that, that I mean it reminds me of you know you can't change and <laughs> that you just might have to just let, Let it, it be. be. Yeah. And you were saying that the singer is was a contestant on American Idol. Yes, yeah. he was, yeah. Beautiful voice. All right. So um, just because we've been talking about a lot of things that are very depressing, I think it's important to talk about what people are doing about it and also what people can do. Mm. And I know that, for example, recently uh, there's been a, a network of mm. young African lawyers that has been set up. And I just want you to tell us a little bit about it, if you can. And so we, we uh, a couple of us came together and started um, an organization called the African Australian Legal Network. And the, essentially the idea of it is um, to be able to connect um, young people who are either interested in law or are in fact lawyers or law graduates of African descent to um, people within the legal industry for mentoring, you know, like job opportunities uh, and just ne general networking um, uh, reasons. Uh, 
we've run so far two um, events. So our first event was a uh, um, the launch, but we also um, it was also connected to uh, bringing people from the uh, Victorian um, legal profession together with um, you know African young people or, or people from African background um, and um, allowing them to talk to each other and hopefully you know would have um, you know um, an organic kind of mentoring uh, process occur where people could then contact someone afterward and if they were interested or impressed by them and then we ran another event recently um, where we assisted um, uh, law graduates to uh, look at their resume and um, in preparation for application for the clerkships process. So we're, we're hoping to run a number of events. It's, it's, you know, we've got an excellent group of, of young and talented and smart um, uh, people working on the team. And I think it's going to be uh, amazing. Mm. Tell me about your own experience as a, as a lawyer. Um, and I'm thinking as well that you have had to combine your profession with quite a lot of media appearances. You're writing articles on newspapers. You know, um, how how much support are you getting from your work- workplace to do all of this? A tremendous support. Tremendous support. And I'm, I mean, I don't think I'll be able to do um, even a quarter of what I do without the support at work. I just have just been excellent. I I couldn't say, I really couldn't say much more about it because. It takes a lot, not just so much as the time itself that you commit to writing an article, but you know the fact that sometimes you can't even bring the headspace to work because you're dealing with, um, you know, uh, something that I- involve a lot of sensitive emotional issues. So, um, for example, on the Monday that I had gone to work and I had to complete a particular task. Um, and then got called by the family of Lachol to come and help out. Now, I was able to go to a senior associate and say, can I do this another time? I've got to go and do this. And, and you know, she was quite happy to say, yeah, you know, just, just get it to me when you can. Um, and, you know, it's, it's amazing that my work have been, you know, I've been able to be that supportive. But in some ways, it's not surprising because um, they've, you know, Anna Block Libel has always done this kind of, work in in some you know some area in some areas they we have got a public interest um the education department they've you know been on cases that um so for example the the hale michael case that um was a racial discrimination case brought against the victorian police in the state of victoria which they 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 run pro, pro bono so they have a history in some ways of of doing this kind of work it's not to suggest that everybody at work agrees necessarily with my the positions i take mm. but I, I do work in an environment where you are encouraged um as much as you can to be not only a good lawyer but a good citizen and i'm very very glad to to have that opportunity yeah, Donald, this is only a, a gut feeling, but going from reading your articles and seeing your contributions even on, on media and on Twitter, I imagine that an additional reason for the firm to support you is because you must be a really good lawyer as well. <laughs> I, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm working at it. And that's, my, that's a big goal of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, it is to be the best lawyer I can be. And I'm at an excellent firm to be able to do that because I also and that's that's and I think that's the uniqueness of it is that I get to do excellent legal work, as well as do, you know, all this other community, um, kind of majority of it which is volu- voluntary, and and have the support to do that. It's very hard, I think, particularly as a junior, because I'm quite junior as well as a junior lawyer, mm. 
to be able to have that in most workplaces. So the next question I have for you is, all of this is happening. Some people are active. What's the recommendation for the ordinary citizen? You know, when they are facing all of this, this sort of wave of racism, mm -hmm. what can people do? A number of people have asked me that, that, um, that question. And I think, I mean, one of the things I hope to do is probably sit down and maybe think of ways that I think someone could use their time. But just on top of my head, you know, um, it really depends what you're good at. Some people are really good at social media, for example, or they're good, you know, technically. Um, some people are good writers. So if you, you know, if you're a good writer, write, write newspapers and try and publish your stories, you know, or blog, you know, try and get your own ideas about why you think we should change this narrative out there. Um, if you're good on social media, you know, you could follow people that, you know, you think are um, pushing, you know, pushing back against this narrative. And you could do simple things like, for example, supporting them when they're being trolled, you know, <laughs> like replying to some of these trolls so that you're taking the attention of the troll away from the person themselves. Um, um you could uh, amplify their voices, you know, which is which is important because a lot of the time the people that are doing this this work don't have as strong voices as some of the media commentators and you know the people who own radio stations and that vote, you know, register to vote, <laughs> you know, <laughs> register and vote, you know, and try and get people to register and vote, you know, because some of these elections. Um, They have quite marginal seats, and and if people, if you call a, your pol your local politician and say, you know, I've heard this, I'm not happy about it, and you know, I'm registered and I'm going to vote, and I'm going to try and get people in my community as well to vote because we don't want this to be the kind of a country that we live in. Wow, um, when you uh, decide to run, um, I will definitely vote as well. Oh, that's <laughs> that's that's very kind, but I I absolutely have no political ambition. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one one thing about politics is that they all they are all allowed to say the opposite to what they really think, and they get away with it. I so. know, but that's that's precisely why I think you know the pol there's so much such lack of trust in politicians because people just don't say what what they mean anymore. You know, so but I mean it. Like I have no political I have no political ambitions. Great. I mean, you know, I I've been um, involved in politics all my life. Not not because of the political ambitions, but because like you, I think it is really important to mm. be active and to say, you know, to stop, com com stop com complaining and to say, you know, if you want to change it, you can do something about it. And for me, it's also just, you know, it's, it's a unique opportunity. Like I came, I know, I, you know, the country of my parents' origin is one in which political activity is punishable in some instances by being arrested or in fact death. So it, we have to be active in the kind of the society we want to, we want to have. And I, I mean, it sounds almost aspirational, but if you're not involved in, in, in campaigning, in voting for, in um, writing about, you know, the kind of society you want to have, someone else will do it. And you might not like the results of it. So it's important to be involved. It's important to have a political voice. Um, it's important precisely because, you know, in a democracy, as someone reminded me, democracy is never won. We're in a constant um, process of debate and, 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 and analysis and, 
And, you know, the more voices that are in that debate, the likely their message win, even if their message might not be the one that is more hospitable to the most of us. Reminds me of uh, that quote. I think it's on Obama's biography. It's it's not by Obama, but he says the most important office is the office of citizen. Mm. So yeah, we, we all have to, our bit to play. Nadol, it's been a, a tremendous pleasure to talk to you today, and we really want to thank you because you know you've been on the ABC, you've been on the Age, the Saturday paper, and you decided to come and and come to Hatfield to this humble uh, radio station to talk to us, and re we really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Good. Thanks, Carol. Thank you. Thank you. It's been And wonderful. We're going to leave you all with um, just a wonderful classic, Nina Simone, Feeling Good. I'm, I'm definitely feeling good after talking to Nia Dol today. <laughs> all right. See you all next week. Sun in the sky, you know how.